Hello, everyone. This is Eric Glazer, and welcome to Bright Spots in Healthcare, produced by Shared Purpose Connect. Each episode, we bring leaders together to not only inform you, our audience, but also unearth bright spots and successes at health plans, hospitals, and various healthcare-related organizations around the country. Our goal is to identify as many great ideas, as many bright spots as possible, so that you can determine if the ideas shared on our show can be applied at your organization. We believe this approach of finding a bright spot and cloning it is the most effective way of changing healthcare in our lifetime. Today, really interesting topic. We talk a lot about social determinants of health and health equity on our show, but today we're going to talk about one of the keys to your health equity strategy. And to do that, we have a very special guest. His name is Errol Pierre. He is the Senior Vice President of State Programs at Health First and the author of the book called The Way Up, Climbing the Corporate Mountain as a Professional of Color. He has spent 10 years at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield and another eight years at Health First. He's got a vast amount of experience within the health plan world and living the life of a professional of color. He's got a lot of good ideas and insights that he's going to share with you today. Errol, welcome to Bright Spots. Welcome back to Bright Spots. Thank you, Eric. Good to see you. Good to hear your voice. Glad to be here. Yeah, I was excited. I know we have a we have a very uh, interesting and and cool conversation we're about to have. And, and just for our listeners, the way I have kind of thought through this conversation with Errol is to talk about first culture as a strategy. Then we're going to talk about some of Errol's background and some of the things that defined him and who he is uh, as a leader in healthcare. And then we're going to get into some of the how do you execute on creating a culture of health equity at your organization and the business impact, the dollars and cents that could potentially be realized uh, by accelerating that process. So we're going to try to cover uh, all of that in less than an hour here. So I want to get right to it, Errol. Let's start. Why is it going to be so hard for all these health plans and health provider organizations and service providers right now? Why is it going to be so hard for them to create a true culture of health equity within their organization? Yeah, it's a, it's a very involved, complex question. Uh, it's hard because it's new and it's difficult. Uh, the first place is data. Uh, it's very, very hard to even get the data necessary to understand where to start to put uh, action in place. So one, it's not easy to ask people, what's your race, what's your ethnicity, what's your gender? Uh, what's your sexual preference? Those are questions that's very private. And so why would you ever tell your doctor that, let alone a health insurer? Yet, that's the data we need so we can satisfy the information even better. Most health plans, I would assume, less than 50% of their membership, they have uh, you know, demographic data on. So one, you don't want to make assumptions when only 50% of uh, your, your membership has data. And then two, you're thinking, how can I earn the trust of the patient or the member to try to get that in, more information on the member. So first, is, is just, it's just hard just to start, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is ROI. So many hospitals, health plans, businesses, they get stuck in this, I won't invest in it unless I can see the money. Uh, you know, when you start there, it's going to be very hard to ever get started and to ever get scale because some of these things you just know you have to do. It's not like I'm going to put in a dollar and I want to see $2. Uh, putting a dollar into health equity 
it's going to be very hard to see $2 come out in a year. Uh, those are long systemic issues that have been happening for ages and ages. So, you know, a one-year plan with investment isn't going to reap ROI in year two and year three. I don't know if people are comfortable saying that out loud. Uh, and I also don't know if people are comfortable spending the money without seeing the returns. But it's something we just have to do because uh, the disparities are so great. So we know that there's investment that's needed. Okay, so number one, not a lot of data, and it's hard to get that data or at least ask for it. And two is it's a longer tail to see an actual return on your investment. Absolutely. Tell me, like, so, you know, I have folks on my show all the time talking about their different programs they have in place. And of course, I think everyone listening knows the the longer tail benefit of building a better uh, relationship with their with their membership cohorts. Uh, and that's all going to start with uh, starting local and speaking and looking like them, uh, like their members. And that's right. That's the value long-term. And we'll get into some of the dollars and cents later on. But when, when you look at health plans, based upon all the different people you get to talk to, like what are some things you see health plans making progress on today? And maybe, maybe even identify areas where you, know, you would advise them to focus on maybe over the next year as we're thinking about, uh, you know, annual operations planning and everything. That, you know, yeah. I think that the, if there's a silver lining to the COVID pandemic, if there is a silver lining, I think it's brought the topic to the forefront so you can talk about it in the boardrooms and at the executive tables. I don't know how much this dialogue was happening in 2019 or 2018 in a boardroom or at the executive team meeting. So, so the, the silver lining is now you can at least talk about it, which is great. Now that people are talking about it, means we're going to attract more research. We need tons of more research because if you think about the research you've seen on health disparities, usually it's black versus white. We have to get way more nuanced. When you say black, are you talking about blacks from the Caribbean? Caribbean descent? Are you talking about blacks from African descent? Are you talking about African-Americans that have been in America for a long time? When we say Hispanic, are we talking about Caribbean uh, Hispanics? They, sp- they speak Spanish as do the people from South America, but their disparities may be different. That level of research is not necessarily out there yet, out in the research world. We need more you know, ad- academics that are going to take this on to dive deeper. The last thing is um, Asian as a bucket. It's such a big bucket. Asian includes China, 1 billion plus people, and India. 1 billion plus people that have so many different um, uh, uh, disparities within their healthcare as they live in America. Yet today, when we see studies, they glom them all together. So uh, my hope is what what plans are doing right is they're talking about it out loud and that's going to let people think about it so there's more research and we need way more segmentation, way more analytics. I think that's another piece that other IC plans doing is funding analytics, which is great. And it's just, you just have to have the, the important note that um, there's going to be bias in analytics. So you have to mitigate against that bias that's embedded in analytics. But I think it's that we're talking about it and we're investing in analytics to actually do these deeper dives because we can't just have a swath of, you know, the, the studies of saying black people are X and white people are Y. It's, it's way more nuanced in America. And it also sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so let's get some clarification. Like if you were going to be a paid consultant to everyone listening right now, maybe where they're going to spend whatever resources they have on making health equity a culture in the organization, maybe spend some time and and money on 
really segmenting, really getting more data to segment their their populations uh, much more stratified than we do right now. That's what I heard you say. Absolutely, yeah. And you'll be smarter with your interventions. You'll be smarter around cultural competency. You'll be smarter around who you hire. You'll be smarter around the contracts that you uh, contract with with your with, with your physicians. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, yeah, I, I'm struck by you. Know, you actually segmenting out, like let's say, the different kinds, uh, the different uh, the different races. You know, breaking up the Hispanics into the different countries they come from, breaking up uh, black. Uh, folks who come from different countries and have different experiences in this country, I, I, that's pretty enlightening and, and something I, I know a lot of people aren't talking about, at least on my show and my conversations. And, and I wonder if it makes sense and if you're comfortable, Errol, but talking a little bit about like your experience, giving some folks some background beyond just your work experience on who you are and some of the things that sort of helped you uh, define who you are and maybe inspire you uh, to write this book. The way up, climbing up the corporate mountain as a professional of color. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, my uh, focus on making sure that there is nuance and detail in how people describe demographics is uh, comes straight from my you know experience growing up. Um, I think anyone uh, of anyone who's uh, uh, of color probably has a story in their past where there was this like moment where they realized. That they were the other. Uh, I call them identity-defining moments. Uh, these are moments that happen in your life where you're like, "Oh, okay, this world around me acts very differently than I thought it did." And then for me, that was when I was a college student uh, at Fordham University in the Bronx, and I was in my senior year. So, so love my time at Fordham. Uh, I'm still an active with my alma mater. I, I mentor kids, and when I was there. The interesting thing about Fordham is it's in the middle and the heart of the Bronx on Fordham Road and Webster, uh, one of the you know lowest income communities in New York City, one of the highest crime rates in the Bronx. And so inside campus, I was considered a very eloquent, educated African-American male. Like, wow, look at this guy. He got to Fordham. He runs track. Right outside the gates of Fordham, I was the drug dealer that was selling drugs to the affluent kids that got into Fordham that were majority white. And so I was living with that dichotomy uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois calls it double consciousness. And what happened was uh, my senior year, I was actually um, uh, arrested for fitting a description improperly and you know, had no idea what was going on when this was, going, when this was happening. And so I was asking the police questions, was trying to ask them why they're grabbing me. You know, they brought me to the floor. And when they found out I wasn't the person they were looking for, it ended up being a class E felony for disorderly conduct. Uh, and that night I was actually put into a, a holding cell and I had to get let out uh, thereafter. So that was like a shock to my system because I was walking around Fordham Road knowing that I was a Fordham student, knowing that I was educated, knowing that I knew my rights, knowing that I was different than the people that were committing crime around me. But in that moment, uh, I was just seen as a criminal. And if anyone walked up to you, you know, playing clothes, cops start grabbing you and bringing you to the floor, you're going to flail. And by me flailing around, it was considered solely conduct. And I ended up in prison that night as a senior in college. So that was like a rude awakening and a shock to my system. And it just made me realize, like, I have to worry about who I am as a person, but also worry about how the world thinks about me. That's that double consciousness. 
so how that story ended, I mean, I was fortunate through this incident. So I was able to have a letter from my coach, a letter from Fordham for my, my court case to say I'm a model citizen, that this was a mistake. My parents had $5,000 to shell out for an attorney. And so my case was dismissed. Uh, my record was being expunged in 10 years. Uh, so that means for 10 years, I was 22. So I had to wait till I'm 32 till it was completely off of my record. But I, was, I didn't have a record. So I was able to start my, my, my job that summer at, my, um, at, my, uh, at my first job out of college because I didn't have a record. But I was lucky. If you look at the stats, um, 96% of the time, people plead guilty or plead down. And so I was one of the 4% that actually had a dismissed case because my parents had money. But I'm just thinking about all the other black and brown kids that got arrested that night that did not. You know, So that definitely was a defining moment in my career. It makes me think about data, analytics, and race so much differently. Yeah, it strikes me that you need... Folks listening need to hear more and more of those stories if they haven't experienced something similar themselves to really, really, truly understand how important it is when you're building a healthcare organization or when you're trying to reinvent a healthcare organization, how important it is to be thinking about who they're hiring and, and how they're approaching their different patient cohorts or member cohorts. So uh, that's that's really good background. And, and then you, you, you go into detail, even more detail about that in the book, right? I do. Like, here's an example. And I'm nerdy this way. So this happened in 2005. I was a senior in college. And I was like, let me pull up the stats. Let me just see what it was looking like in 2005. So in my book, I, I talk about there was uh, 398,000 stop and frisk that year in 2005. Uh, 89% of the findings of those stop and frisk there was nothing on the pay, on the people, so they were 100% innocent. 89%, uh, 54% of those stop and frisks were black males like myself, uh, and I only represented 25% of the demographics in New York City at the time. So we were over, you know, obviously over-indexed in searching for. And then uh, in Fordham specifically, 44% of the stop and frisks were, were used excessive force. And this is all public data because obviously there was a court case around stop and frisk, so they had to disclose all of their metrics and you could look this up. So I was just thinking to myself that, you know, I was an individual going to college and I got caught up in this algorithm that had a, uh, you know, a false rate of 89%. And so I get very sensitive and emotional about um, algorithms in healthcare. What are the false positives there? And that there's human beings behind every false positive, right? And so, you know, where can you be 89% wrong in, 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 your, in your work? So um, it just makes things real. It takes things, makes things so much more real. Yeah, I, I, want, I want your perspective on some of the tactics and, and how organizations should be thinking about executing on health equity as a strategy and a cultural shift within their organization. Before we go right into that, it struck me as I was asking you the question about your background, you might have noticed, and I'm sure our listeners did, that I sort of struggled with the words to tee up the question. Like, I wasn't exactly sure the right way to say it. And the truth is, like, I have two kids in college. I love them dearly. And sometimes when we're having conversations, they're really into different areas of, of I would say, equity. They're not in healthcare. They're freshmen and sophomores in college. But I, I'm curious. They sometimes tell me that I use the wrong terminology. Like my terminology is inappropriate. 
uh, and I'm, I'm trying to say the right thing, but I don't. And so it's probably why you, you said some uncertainty when I was teeing you up for that question. And so I'm wondering if you could help, you know, as a professional of color and author of this book and someone who's thriving in their career clearly, maybe to help all of us understand sort of what are the right words and nomenclature we should be using to effectively yeah. bring, you know, help launch and launch this culture within our organizations. Yeah. I think the first step is exactly what you did, Eric, which was asked a question, which is awesome that you asked a question. I don't know uh, if there's anyone that is the purveyor of the right terms to use because they're changing so fast. Uh, just when I do my research, uh, when I was doing my, my doctorate, uh, there was research papers from the 80s and 90s that use some terms, but then now in the 2000s and the 2010s, they're using different terms. And so the terms consistently evolve, but I'll just try to speak to some of them. So an example is uh, there was a term that was always used for, to uh, speak about underrepresented people, which was minorities. And minority was used in common state. I think the common knowledge today is there's a pejorative sense to the word minority because it's sort of saying less than. So I've seen in academia less and less use of the word minority and more and more use of the term underrepresented. So how do I say that they are a minority but not use a pejorative word that says they're less than because by saying someone's a minority, it means that someone's a majority. So underrepresented. So I've used more the word underrepresented uh, people, underrepresented communities, which tends to be a better term and doesn't have that uh, pejorative uh, tinge to it. Uh, so that's one piece, you know. Um, an interesting one is people of color. So there are people who believe that people of color sort of peanut butter spreads uh, all of the underrepresented groups together and doesn't call out specific issues. So, you know, if, for example, if someone was uncomfortable saying Black Lives Matter and say, well, we should think about people of color, all, all minorities or all underrepresented groups. And what the, the counter to that is, no, if we're talking about disparities and we know the worst disparities, for example, in maternity mortality is in black women, don't say women of color, don't say people of color, say black women, specify the people you're talking about. Um, but that even gets complicated because when you say black women, like, <laughs> you can get into the terms of Black versus African-American or Caribbean-American or from Africa, so African descent. So it's, it's, this is not easy stuff, which is why I thought the way you started of asking the question is important. Um, but I've seen people of color start to wean with the newer generation, Gen Z, because of the terminology BIPOC, uh, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So BIPOC is a phrase that's used to sort of specify uh, black and indigenous outside of people of color as well. Um, and then there's even terms like Latinx, which was to say, instead of saying Latino or Latina, to say Latinx, which means they could be man, woman, or, or non-binary. But I've heard people who are of Hispanic background say they don't like that term. So I think it comes down to, one, people knowing that you are leading with um, the effort to be better Two, that you give grace to folks that might not know the right terminology. When I was thinking of my book, I landed on professionals of color 
but I used the terminology because I used APA guidelines. So in academia, you know, whenever you write a dissertation, you use the latest APA guidelines. I use the same latest APA guidelines to when I was talking about race and ethnicity. But it's a convoluted question. But these are the type of questions we have to have in our offices, right? So that we all can learn together. So, so let's unpack a couple of those those areas you just covered. Uh, so first of all, because uh, I always am very sensitive to acronyms on the show, so people really understand them. When you say uh, BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color, B-I-P-O-C. So that's, if you're Googling that, if you're not familiar with that term. And then the APA, that is? American Psychology Association. Okay. All right. Great. Now, I want to just summarize everything you just said. It sounds like, like what would be your advice to a leader at a health plan, a provider, any healthcare organization around establishing the right terminology to use? Is it bringing together a committee uh, to figure that out? Because going just, just you're validating my insecurities that there's no real stable ground here. So what would be your advice to people listening? Yeah, I, I like the idea of there's a health equity committee that's, uh, creating language for how to talk about these things. And then there's language that is normalized within the company so everyone knows what it means. I think that makes a lot of sense. And you define the terms you use so people have it. And having a glossary that's readily available for everyone to see makes things transparent and there's no gotcha moments. And then it's it's opportunity for education. You know, we're all learning. So, you know, the terms are going to change. In five years, there may be new terms. And so it's, it's a constant evolution. But I like the idea of putting together a diverse committee to kind of land on best practices for nomenclature. Let's talk about hiring now and just creating that, you know, a, a nice, giant, important tactic to creating that culture of health equity. Why are there such few numbers of diverse applicants uh, in I'm going to use your word now, uh, underrepresented populations uh, at the top of a healthcare organization. And, and then maybe the follow-up says, what do leaders of color need to do? And, and also all underrepresented populations, what do they need to do to sort of take that next step from maybe middle management uh, towards a, a senior level role? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the basis of, of the book. So I started my research really looking at the Fortune 500 companies and what they look like. Uh, minority women on the boards of Fortune 500 companies uh, represent 6% of the spots of the board seats. Minority men represent 12% of the board seats. Uh, white women represent 20% of the board seats. So if you look at the demographics of the country, obviously uh, women represent 51% or more of the country. Uh, underrepresented minorities is, is at least 33, 34% of the country. So there's a big gap between uh, the demographics of the country and then what you find at Fortune 500 companies. So what used to be the reason and what people said was, oh, well, that's because there's not enough qualified folks. That's a fallacy. I've done the research. I've looked at too many studies to show that increasingly people uh, of color are getting degrees Women are getting degrees. Women are even getting degrees faster than men. So it's, it's a complete fallacy that there's not enough uh, edu education levels an issue. Then it was, well, they're not raising their hands for it. Another fallacy, they are raising their hands. There's been exponential growth in these populations getting into white-collar jobs. They do want these jobs. 
uh, women want these jobs, minority people want these jobs. So I'm using all the wrong terms as I say this too. Um, uh, people of color want these jobs. And so it's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of experience. It's not a lack of wanting. So the question is, what is it? And the book interviews 11 other executives of color to ask that same question. And it comes down to uh, implicit bias and how powerful it is that we like to hire people that resemble us. So if you have a board that is not diverse, it'll lead to an executive team that is not diverse, which will lead to senior leaders that are not diverse and it trickles and trickles and trickles down. So the question is, how do you offset that bias? And everyone has bias. As a black male, I have bias, but how do you offset it is making sure you have mitigation and controls to offset the bias. Uh, so that's really what the, the, the book focuses on. And then there's tools and things that uh, employees of color can do in the organization that can accelerate their growth. And that's, you know, all the typical things of like mentoring, making sure that they take advantage of um, DEI programs, uh, stepping up, understanding how to uh, you know, navigate the workplace, uh, all those types of things, which if you didn't have a white, this is my example, like both my parents, my, my dad washed dishes in a nursing home. My mom worked in a pharmacy at a hospital. They couldn't give me the tools that I needed to escalate in corporate America. So um, I had to turn to other folks that could help me because they didn't have a, the background themselves. And that's the importance of mentorship, uh, especially for people of underrepresented backgrounds to, to sort of get those tools. It's wonderful. So it sounds like it's a really good book to gift uh, to your colleagues, uh, to, your, to your coworkers and things like that. Yeah, I think I, my hope for is one, if I was reading this book and I said, hey, is it true that my employees of diverse backgrounds are doing these extra efforts above and beyond their day-to-day -day job just to sort of survive and swim, swim in place with the rest of the crowd? Wow, that's a, that's a lot of extra energy. How can I, as a leader, create an environment where it's not that hard? It's a little bit less effort to, to, to keep up with the rest of the group. That's that's the hope of it, right? So so it's just more a matter of having more exposure. Yeah. Um, and there's studies. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. If there is um, a pool of candidates you're looking for for a senior leadership position, and it's, there's only one woman, one woman on the pool of candidates. This was a Harvard Business Review study. Um, there's like a ninety percent chance a woman will not be hired. Magically, when you add a second woman to the pool of candidates. The, the uh, ability or the, the probability that a woman's hired goes up to 50%. So it's just a matter of like making tiny tweaks, which help with bias. Right. Um, and those are the type of things that we can do all around. Yeah. Amen. I, I, I mean, listen, I think everything you're saying is, is, is so important to not just doing the right thing by our fellow uh, human beings uh, and fellow uh, colleagues within the industry, it's actually really important uh, to drive the business and advance the business. Can you speak a little bit about some of the metrics you've looked at and, and maybe give some inspiration to folks uh, around how this will advance their business if they're in the C-suite right now uh, and what the impact yeah. could be? Yeah, it's a great question. By no means am I asking business leaders high-powered executives to be altruistic and you know they, they don't have to be you know try to run a nonprofit inside their company it is we're not giving jobs for the sake of having you know nice metrics um 
there's actually business imperatives that come out of diversity. So McKinsey has been very vocal about this reporting. They, they did a review of 366 public companies. These are public uh, traded truck companies. And the companies that were in the top quartile of ethnic and racial diversity in management were 35% more likely to have financial returns above the industry mean. So you have higher representation of ethnic and racial diversity in management, 35% more likely to have higher returns than the industry mean. When you do that for women, 15% more likely to have higher returns than uh, above the industry mean. Why? Uh, you're catching your blind spots. This is how you mitigate bias. You have an executive team, a management team from diverse backgrounds. Like, I'm going to bring my life experiences to the table. They're going to bring their life experiences to the table. Whatever the strategy is going to be, is going to be that much better because you had a confluence of folks at the table thinking about it. When you have groupthink, everyone's going to have the same blind spots, right? And that's where you see like these companies that launch something have to apologize. It's like, <laughs> you know, that probably no one was diverse on that team because they made a big mistake or whatever, or there was groupthink involved. So powerful, powerful financial um, outcomes by having uh, diversity. It's, it's, it's not just for altruistic reasons. And folks, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to put in the show notes, there's two McKinsey studies that cover this, both the Delivering Through Diversity study and report as well as why diversity matters. I'm going to put the links to those within the show notes and description of the show. So if you scroll down, you can click on those and get to exactly where Errol was uh, uh, referencing. Uh, this was super interesting conversation. I, I know we're coming close tight on time. Where, uh, where could people find this book, first of all? And where can people reach out to you? Great. So the book is available everywhere books are sold. It comes out December 13th. You could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it at Barnes and Nobles. You could buy it at Target. Uh, anywhere you find books are sold, you can find the book. Uh, and you can ask them for it. And you can find me at arrowpierre.com. Got it. So I'm going to spell that for everyone. That's E-R-R-O-L-P-I-E-R-R-E.com. That's one word. I'll also put that link in the show notes. And if, if you send me, Errol, a uh, link to where you could pre-order on Amazon, I'll throw that into the show notes as well for you, okay? Also, Perfect. if you want to hear some more magic and great insights from Errol Prier, he was on our show, he was on the Bright Spots and Healthcare show in September uh, when we covered redetermination strategies to maximize Medicaid reimbursement. So if you type in Bright Spots uh, or just type in redetermination strategies to maximize Medicaid, you will find that within the Bright Spots feed as well. What a thrill. This was great. I wish we had more time. We could talk more. I really appreciate all the insights and congratulations on the book. I, I highly encourage every leader to get this book, review the book. There's some incredible insights uh, in the book, and then make sure that their teams get it as well. Uh, the Way Up, Climbing the Corporate Mountain as a Professional of Power by Errol Pierre. Thanks, Errol. Thank you. Hey everyone, before you take off, just a few quick items. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, I ask you the huge favor of giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. It sounds fickle, but these ratings really help us make this podcast sustainable long-term. Even better, if you could write a positive comment or testimonial, that would be very helpful. We'd really appreciate it. If you have suggestions, constructive criticism, or simply want to connect, I am on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Eric Glazer, or you can email me directly at eglazer at sharedpurposeconnect.com.
The Bright Spots in Healthcare podcast is produced by Sherry Keels, Cesar Del Castillo, and me. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.